Judges chapter number 6. I want to read a little bit of a story. In fact, uh, go to Judges chapter 2. Let me read just a little bit from chapter 2, and then we'll jump over to chapter 6. Read a little bit of a story from the book of Judges. Judges chapter number 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 10. Verse number 10. The Bible says, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. And whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed." Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went to whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which the fathers, their fathers had walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings, nor... From their stubborn way. Well, so was God's description of this period of time. Turn over to Judges chapter 6 for uh, the story of Gideon, one of those judges that God used to bring deliverance. Judges chapter 6 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was, when Israel had sown, that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites, and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor, nor, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle in their tents. They came up as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished. 
because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord. Well, we read about and we hear about peace treaties and peace talks and peace accords. You know, as long as there have been sinful human beings on earth, there's been conflict and the need for intervention, the need for somebody to bring peace in the midst of conflict. I say uh, ever since there have been sinful human beings, because when we read from the beginning of our Bible, we realize that Adam and Eve enjoyed peace. A precious time of peace was a reality for their lives. Uh, they enjoyed peace between themselves. They enjoyed peace between themselves and God. Uh, during that uh, interval of time before sin entered the human experience, peace ruled. It was the experience of Adam and Eve together and with their God. But then sin came along. And sin ripped the home in half. And conflict became an ugly reality that requires work to deal with. And that's why there are peace treaties and meetings to try to establish peace accords and treaties of peace. It takes work to be able to overcome the conflict that comes naturally as a result of sinful activity. Well, we see that reality, do we not? We see it in our own lives. Do you have a peaceful conscience when you lay your head down at night? All is at peace between you and God and you and your fellow man. Well, we, we see it in, in homes where peace slips away as a result of conflict and sin in the lives of family members. We see it in our work environment at times. We see it in our world for sure. But we see all around us the result of sin is conflict. And the presence of conflict requires a lot of hard work to be able to establish peace in the place of conflict. And that's why the, the name for God that you've been meditating on this week, earlier this week you received this week's prayer sheets from Community Baptist Church, and every week your prayer sheet has a different name of God for you to meditate on. And this week you've been meditating on God as Jehovah Shalom. God, my peace. Have you enjoyed meditating on that name this week? God is the God who brings peace in the place of conflict. 
He's the God that enables the hard work of establishing peace to be accomplished. When we had experienced conflict and struggle, God is a God of peace. I've been meditating on that name for God, Jehovah Shalom, God my peace. And it causes me to ask myself some questions. Do I have a peaceful life? Am I living with the reality of peace every day in my life? Is my conscience clear and clean when I go to bed at night before I drift off to sleep? Is there peace? Nobody that I'm in conflict with. Nobody that I had words with that haven't been reconciled. Peace in my life. Is my home a haven of peace? Is it the kind of place where you go, I'm home. Been in the rat race, the conflicts, the struggles, the arguments, the fights, the fusses. I'm home. All is at peace here. Is your home a haven of peace? Is peace your present experience in your work environment? No conflicts with coworkers, living a life of amazing peace. Is, is your country enjoying peace today? Jehovah Shalom is the God who enables peace. But peace is a lot of work. Because conflict comes from sin. Sin is our nature. Sin rules. Conflict is real. And it takes a lot of hard work with God to be able to replace conflict with peace. But that's what God's all about. That's who He is. He is Jehovah Shalom. We need peace. Well, the book of Judges provides us a unique opportunity to, in a very short period of time, to scan 350 years of history. They were difficult years of history. The time spans from the death of Joshua who took Moses' place when Moses died. Joshua led Israel into the promised land at the end of the 40-year wandering. Judges records the span of history from the death of Joshua to the uh, establishing the beginning of the kingdom, the first king of Israel, Saul. Judges opens up with an explanation that we read a moment ago from chapter 2. It's an explanation that kind of helps us to get ready to read this scan of 350 years of history. The explanation is that Joshua and all of his generation that had uh, come through the, the wilderness wandering and, and uh, came across that Jordan River and the walls of Jericho fell down and God gave them the land promised to their forefathers generations and generations earlier. And Joshua led them into that. And oh, it was victory. A land that flowed with milk and honey. Now Joshua's dead. His generation is dead. The Bible says there rose up a generation that didn't know God, nor did they know the things that God had done in their heritage. That's quite a black mark, a black eye to the parents. Can you imagine 
being of the generation that went through the wilderness, and then you crossed the Jordan River on dry ground and entered into the promised land and the walls of Jericho fell down and you raised your kids in the promised land and never taught them about Jehovah God and what he did to bring them out of Egypt. A generation rose up that didn't know God, didn't know Jehovah God, and didn't know the works that God had done. And so that generation ceased worshiping Jehovah God. And that began a 350-year period of generation after generation walking away from God. It, it, it's kind of it's got a uh, it's got a bit of a uh, uh, a characteristic that follows through, and that characteristic is finally named in the last verse of the book of Judges. After scanning this 350 years, the last verse gives us the key characteristic of that period of time. The Bible says in Judges chapter number. 21 verse 25, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. No objective truth. No God who established what is morality. No, no specific truth. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone made up their own standard of right and wrong. Everyone established their own God and their own rules. It was, a, it was 350 years of abject failure. It's known, Judges, remember when we learned the outline of the book of Judges? It's, it's the book of failure. And rather than an outline, it has a recurring pattern. Sin, slavery, supplication, and salvation. The people sinned and went away from God. The end result was that they brought upon themselves the judgment of God that put them in slavery to a foreign power. It got so bad that they... Tr- finally supplicated God and cried out to God. And God sent them a rescuer. He saved them from the foreign oppression. And only then to raise another generation that knew not God and that worshipped other gods. And then they went through the same cycle again and again and again and again. For 350 years, everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And this horrible cycle continued. In the midst of that, there's one story that I chose. It's the story from which we find the name Jehovah Shalom. It's the story of Gideon in chapter 6. I want to take just a moment to, to learn something of the experience of Gideon that teaches us about peace. Peace in your own heart, your own conscience. Peace in your home, peace in your church, peace in your workplace, peace in your nation, peace wherever there are sinful people that relate to one another. How can we have peace? We need peace. Boy, like never before in my lifetime, America needs peace. What can we learn from Gideon's experience that helps us know how peace comes? Well, I see four developments as I read the story of Gideon, and I want to share these four developments with you. The first development is very sin. It comes from the, uh, very simple, it comes from the first six verses of chapter number six. And in these verses, we see that sin is what brings conflict 
or the lack of peace in our lives. You see, chapter 6 tells us the story of this cycle of sin, slavery, supplication, and salvation experienced by Israel in the days of Gideon. And the Bible opens up chapter 6 by, by uh, indicating, by stating that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. For seven years they're slaves. For seven years they're living under the hand of Midian. Now, the verse number 3 also mentions the Amalekites and also mentions the children of the east. If you were to get out an old Bible geography and be able to try to get an idea of where this is all taking place, the, the Midianites were the people that lived to the east of the Red Sea, the, the main body of the Red Sea. We would call that Saudi Arabia today. The, the Amalekites uh, lived in the region just above that, uh, crossing across above the Red Sea and below the Dead Sea and maybe up even a little bit higher than that. That's where the Amalekites were from. And the uh, children of the east would have been further east from that area. And so we're, what we're talking about is Saudi Arabia and Jordan. That's where these people lived that came in and took the people of Israel and made them their slaves, brought them into captivity, ruled over them. The Bible says for seven years the, the Jewish people uh, would, would plant their crops and they would try to produce in their agrarian society. And, and they, would, they would raise their crops, they would raise their livestock. And every year, year after year after year, when the time of harvest came, in came these hordes of foreigners who were worshiping idols and were the enemies of the people of God. And they stripped their land bare. They took all of the harvest that Israel had been working through the year to grow. That they took of their livestock that had been born that year. They impoverished Israel every year for seven years. Israel was living in fear. The Bible says in verse number two that they made themselves dens in the mountains and caves and strongholds. In other words, they went into hiding. They didn't live out in the open. They didn't live in villages where it was easy to find them. They hid in dens and caves. And for seven years they lived in hiding because they were living under the fear of conflict. Conflict with the Midianites, the Amalekites, and, and the children of the east. The Bible says that when they would come in, they would come in with great numbers says that they were, they were like grasshoppers for numbers. They were, they were innumerable, verse number 5 tells us. Their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished as a result. I want you to understand that it is sin that brings conflict. It is sin that brings conflict. Fights, arguments, wars, words, said in anger, are all the result of sin. When Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, God sent them conflict and left them impoverished with no peace 
no security, no happiness. I have to ask myself the question, is there a lack of peace in my life, which is the result of the presence of sin in my life? Do I have in my life and in the relationships of the people around me unresolved conflicts because of my sin that has resulted in anger and conflict, trouble and difficulty? It is sin that brings conflict, anger, bitterness, all come in a nation in a church, in a home, in a family, and in my own heart, always comes as the result of sin. Because the presence of sin brings conflict. There's a second development that comes as a result of, uh, or in this process, this development of peace. The second development is that conflict can and should produce hunger. Did you notice in verse number 6, the Bible says that Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. The children of Israel cried unto the Lord. In other words, the conflict got so bad. It was so uncomfortable. It was so difficult. It was, it was so filled with anxiety and tenseness and tears. They finally got to the point that they cried out to God because of the conflict that sin has brought into my experience. You see, conflict produces hunger for God. And I have to ask myself the question, how bad does it have to get before I finally cry out to God? How bad does the conflict have to be? How bad does the anger have to become? How bad do the arguments have to be? How, come, how, how bad does the harshness have to be before I finally get my back to the wall and finally cry out to God? Because I'm hungry for something other than what I'm experiencing. Well, conflict produces hunger. By the way, do you know that's why God sends the conflict? When, when Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, he didn't allow them to enjoy it. He didn't allow them to just go ahead and go through life with their sin. No. He allowed conflict in their lives in order to make them hungry for something better. How many trouble-filled nights do I have to spend before I finally cry out to God? When I finally come to the end of myself, when I finally realize that, that I can't fix my problem, I need God. I need God's involvement in my life. I'm hungry for God. Sin brings conflict. Conflict produces hunger. Here's the third development. Hunger brings God. That's a good thing, isn't it? Hunger brings God. Verse number 7 says, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord, and then God got involved. You see, hunger for God brings God into my experience. And it came to pass that the Lord sent. God entered the scene. I love these verses. James 4, 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. You like that one? 
How about Zechariah 1, 3? Therefore say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you. I like that. When you finally get hungry enough, when you finally get to the point that you're hungry enough for God to get involved in the conflict, God's there. Hunger brings God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. When the conflict makes it bad enough that you're hungry for God and cry out to him, God shows up on the scene. And God says, if you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me. I'll be there. I'll get involved. And Proverbs 8 17 says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. I like that. You see, when we're hungry for God, He shows up on the scene. And He gets involved with what it is that we're struggling with. And that we need Him so desperately to get involved in in our lives. That brings me to the last development. Sin... Sin produces conflict. Conflict produces hunger. Hunger brings God to the scene. And when God shows up, God brings action. God is a God of action. God shows up to do something. When God gets involved, expect God to act. When God gets involved, expect God to do something. Now, now what did God do when he showed up on the scene? God brought action. Well, I find two things that God did, specific things. Verse number 8, the Bible says that God sent a preacher. The Lord sent a prophet. And in verse number 11, and there came an angel of the Lord. God sends a preacher to a nation. The, the preacher showed up and didn't preach to Gideon as an individual. The preacher showed up and preached to the people of Israel that had sinned and brought this great conflict into their experience that got their backs against the wall so badly that they got hungry for God and cried out. And then God shows up and he sends a preacher to the nation. But then an angel shows up and the angel showed up to speak to a man, an individual, one person. So I see that God brings action. God sends a preacher to a nation and he sends an angel to one individual person that God wanted to work through to change his life so that he could be a catalyst for what God wanted to do in bringing peace to the people of Israel. Well, let's look at the preacher first. Verse number 8 says, The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, and he which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So the preacher shows up, the preacher preaches to the crowds of people, and the preacher announces to the crowds of people what God told him to say. And what God told him to say was this. God in the first person, the preacher quoting God, God says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said also, and I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my 
voice. So a nameless preacher comes to Israel and announces God's perspective on the situation they're in. It doesn't, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's pretty basic. God gives his perspective on what's going on in Israel. And God's perspective is simple. I've done all this for you, and you've disobeyed me. And that's why you're in the fix you're in. You just won't do what I told you to do. That's God's perspective. Now, the people already recognized there was something wrong. They were already crying out to God to get involved. So why did the preacher preach this very simplistic message that God performed all the miracles that your forefathers enjoyed to get them out of Egypt and into the promised land, and now that you're here, you won't do what I tell you to do? That's a pretty simple message. And they were already crying out for God. They already knew they had blown it. Why does the preacher preach a message that's so simplistic that the people already understand? Well, I was thinking about that. And the only thing I can think of is that God doesn't, God doesn't leave it for any chance that we may or may not understand specifically that this is my problem. I caused this. God spells it out in black and white and says, you're the problem. You're the problem. You have not done what I told you to do. And because you've not done what I've told you to do, you're suffering the conflict you're suffering right now. Until you own up to your responsibility for what you've done that's caused this conflict in your life, this lack of peace in your life, then there's no hope for you. So God spells it out real clear. You know, he sends a preacher to preach to them. Somebody must have a handle on the situation. Somebody has to be able to make it simple and easy enough for a child to understand. Somebody has to direct the people to come to grips with their involvement in the situation. Which reminds me that when I lack peace... And I'm experiencing conflict with people. I need to ask myself some hard questions about my responsibility in this conflict. Am I, am I the husband God tells me to be? Or is the lack of peace because I'm a jerk? Am I the wife? That God instructs me to be. Are all these, are all these conflicts because I'm just too stubborn to do what God tells me as a godly wife to do? Could it be that the reason I'm always fighting with my parents is because I've got a rebellious heart as a young adult, a teenager? And I just don't like it when dad and mom tell me what I have to do. Can I come to the point that I recognize that the problem is me? Because I'm not obeying what God told me as a young person living under the authority of my dad and mom. How God tells me I'm supposed to live and, and react to them. It, at work, is, it, is my problem with my boss because I, I just... Could it be that in our 
big major cities that the problem might not always be the police? Could it be that it's me, O oh Lord, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer? It's not my mother, not my father, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. God, it's me. And the preacher nails them on it and says, you don't do what God told you to do. You're the problem. Deal with it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the kind of preaching that Generation Z's love. It's me, O oh Lord. God sends a preacher to the nation to point out to them that they're getting exactly what they need to get in order for God to work in their hearts individually. And then he sends an angel to a specific man. It gets really personal when he sends the angel to the specific man in verse number 11. And God shows up to Gideon and Gideon's hiding. He's, he's at a wine press threshing wheat. You don't thresh wheat at a wine press. Wine presses were typically down in low elevations where they bring the grapes down and press the grapes. Threshing floors were at the top of the hill where you can catch the wind blowing across the top of the hill. You thresh wheat on the top of the hill. You press the grapes at the bottom of the hill. Gideon is at the bottom of the hill threshing wheat, trying to catch enough of a breeze to get the chaff away from the grain. And he's scared. And he's hiding because he knows the conflict is real. An angel shows up and the angel says, Gideon, you're quite the man of valor. Me? Yeah, Gideon, you're quite the man of valor. The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor, verse 12 tells us. And Gideon's response is amazing. We're, we're about out of time, but, but to, to read through and think through the response that Gideon brings. Gideon, it's obvious Gideon has been meditating on the situation of conflict that his nation is in. He's been thinking about it. He's been meditating on it. He said to the angel, if God be with us, why? Are all these things happening to us? He's forsaken us. He's delivered us in the hand of the Midianites. One man. Kind of, kind of um, foreshadowing QBQ. It's not who's going to fix this problem. God, I'm meditating on this situation, trying to understand it. And the angel says, you're the man, Gideon. Don't ask who's going to fix it. You fix it. You deal with it. God wants to use you in this situation, Gideon. And God saw in Gideon something that Gideon didn't see in himself. Gideon saw in himself the least of his family hiding in a wine press, trying to thresh wheat. And God says, Gideon, I see possibility in you. You can be a man of valor. What's going to be the difference? What's going to be the difference is that verse 16 says the Lord's going to be with you. Surely I will be with thee and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. God says the difference between how you see yourself and what I see as the future 
is I'm going to be with you, providing for you what you need to take you from who you see yourself to be, to become the person I'm going to use to bring great things for the nation of Israel. Man, unsure of himself, desires evidence and says to the angel, how do I know this is real? Verse number 18, or verse number 17, show me a sign. And so the angel says, okay, we'll, we'll hang around here. You, you go ahead and fix a meal. Get a, get a goat, a little kid goat, and, and, and prepare it and, and, and make some unleavened cakes and, 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 and cook up some good, boil up some good broth with that meat, you know. And uh, we'll wait for you. And Gideon rushes off and he prepares all this meal. He does all this work. He gets the animal. He, he slays the animal. He, he harvests the meat. He, he fixes the meat, the, the, the broth. He makes some unleavened cakes, gets it all done, brings it out to the angel. And the angel said, okay, I want you to put it over there on that rock. And, and so he put it and arranged it over there on the rock. And then the angel took his staff and touched it and poof, it was gone. He didn't even eat one bite of that good roast beef. Not one sip of that meat, one piece of that meat dipped in the broth. Not a bite of the unleavened bread. You say, what a waste. You ever wondered, you know, why does God have us do stuff and then he doesn't use what we did? You ever thought that the value of something is not the commodity that's produced. The value is the work and the sacrifice of the person who invested to create the commodity. Remember David? Oh, if I could just have a drink of water from the spring there at Jerusalem. Those old guys made their way in, risked their lives, got that water, brought it back out to David. And David, when he saw what they had done, when he realized they'd risked their lives to get him one drink of water from that spring, he took it, he poured it out, didn't even drink it. Well, I'd have been ripped off if I'd have been one of those men. The value wasn't in the water. The value is in the sacrifice in the hearts of those men that would sacrifice to do something for their king. It wasn't what Gideon ran and did. It was the heart of Gideon that wanted to do something for his God. Well, this amazing story kind of wraps up with the angel leaving and verse number 24, Gideon built an altar there under the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. God, who is going to bring peace in the place of this conflict that we're wrestling with in our nation. And I learned some things. I learned that God wants us to have peace and not conflict. Conflict exists because of sin. I'm talking about personal conflict in my heart. I'm talking about conflict in a home. I'm talking about conflict wherever two people aren't getting along together. Conflict is the result of sin. And sin requires that I honestly deal with my role and my part in what it is that is wrong. I see Gideon meditating and thinking and wondering, why is all this? Why is all this? Why is all this? And God came to Gideon because he was a person with a heart that was yearning for peace. 
And God chose Gideon to be the man that God would bring peace back to Israel. And, and the result of that was God identifying himself as the God who is able to create peace in the midst of conflict. And I learned how important it is for conflict to be present in life in order for me to get to the point where I'm willing to deal with it and make hard decisions and seek God and see myself as God sees me and turn to the Word of God to find out what's the answer? What am I doing wrong? What, how can I change? What do I need to be in order for this conflict to turn into peace and joy and happiness once again. And you know the amazing thing is, God's Word has the answers. If we would just take the time to look to His Word and let it shine the light of God's truth into my heart, my attitudes, and my actions, and begin to change me, and I've got to get so uncomfortable that I'm willing to do hard things in order for Jehovah Shalom to replace conflict with peace. Well, I've been thinking about this, and next week, Lord willing, the cold case Christianity for kids is going to start here on Sunday evenings. And I think for just a few Sunday nights, we're going to be thinking about conflict in the home. Conflict in the home. And what it is that a husband and a wife can do in order to deal with conflict in the home. And I'm just so glad God gave us a book that teaches us how we can have peace in our homes. In the nation, oh, how desperate we need Jehovah Shalom in America right now. If you're not registered to vote in the upcoming election, I implore you to get registered to vote immediately. Our country doesn't need more liberal policy that will exasperate what has happened in our country over the last few months. We don't need in the top leadership in our country people who advocate even worse abortion policies than what we already suffer with in our country. We desperately need some people in our country who will promote and enact laws that move us back closer to a biblical principle than further away from it. And I implore you to pray for your nation. God told us, pray for the kings and all that are in authority. Why? That we might live in peace. Pray for your nation. Vote. Vote. Vote in this upcoming election. If you're not registered, get registered. I've read statistics. The number of evangelical Christians across our nation that aren't even registered to vote. If they registered to vote and voted, we could elect anyone we wanted to office. The number of evangelical Christians that aren't even registered to vote and don't vote is atrocious in our country. Don't be one of those people. 
Make sure you're registered. Vote. We need to do our civic duty. Why? Because Jesus Christ told us to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And in our form of government, that means, that includes praying for and voting for the leaders that we believe would best promote principles of biblical morality and and biblical uh, truth. And so I encourage you. You know, uh, Franklin Graham of the Billy Graham um, organization just put out an announcement, I think this week. He is so burdened for the state of America. He has invited Christians to join him on the mall uh, on, I think, a Saturday next month uh, to pray for America, to pray for our country before we go into the election. And Christians, as Christians, we need to recognize that our country is in turmoil because of sin, because of a rejection of biblical principles, truths, morality. And we need to pray. We need to vote. We need to stand for the truths of God in order to promote peace in our land.